Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. In his latest book, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, Jonathan Taplin chronicles his adventures as both a witness and a participant in a number of significant cultural events over the past 50 plus years. He was at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival, the night that Bob Dylan went electric, and also at the Monterey Pop Festival in Woodstock. In 1966, he toured with Bob Dylan and the Hawks, later named The Band. He became a film producer in the 1970s, created the Internet's first video-on-demand service in the 1990s, and currently writes about Internet monopolies and their impact on democracy. His book is published by Heyday Press, and I'm pleased that it's brought Jonathan Taplin to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Leonard. And I left a few things out. We'll get to them as well. Uh, in, in the prologue to your book, you uh, describe your life as a series of random acts of good fortune being in the right place at the right time. So was it all just a matter of coincidence? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, some of it was luck, but some of it was being willing to take a chance and and leave one life behind and go to another when i you know i had been fairly successful in the music business but after i did the concert for bangladesh i realized that most of the musicians i wanted to work with no longer wanted to go on the road and so i just took a chance and went to hollywood and and a friend mm-hmm. Named Jay Cox said, well, when you go out there and look up this young film editor named Marty Scorsese, he he edited Woodstock and he loves the band and he loves a lot. Same kind of music you love. And, and maybe you guys could be friends. And I was so naive. I didn't really know you weren't supposed to put your own money into making movies. And uh, mm-hmm. I met Marty and I, I decided with a friend to finance Mean Streets. And, you know, fortunately, Marty made a great movie and we were able to get our money back. But I had never heard the concept OPM, other people's money, which is (laughs) the rule number one in Hollywood. (laughs) We'll get more to that in a while. But um, uh, let's let's tell the story from the start. You opened the first chapter of the book by musing about how different your life might have been if your older brother hadn't introduced you to Bob Dylan's first album in 1962. So what was it about that album that changed everything for you? Well, you know, obviously I was aware of this kind of nascent civil rights movement that was going on. And Bob was beginning to sing about these social problems in a way that was really reaching me. And if you remember, I mean, you were old enough to know that in 1961 and 62, what was on the radio was like Frankie Avalon and Fabian. And, you know, it was like pop nonsense. Uh, Elvis had gone into the army and uh, fast stomp. Fats Domino. Chuck and, Berry. There were a whole bunch of, of good people yeah, as well, but yeah, but I guess. Yeah, but, but most of them had banned, been banned from the radio by the early 60s because of being too frightening in a way, you know? Uh, and so. Well, a racist. Bob, Bob came into that. And, and so there was a kind of marriage between the, the civil rights movement and the culture. And it was clearly underground in the sense that 
Dylan's first album sold like 4,000 copies. Uh, and just while I'm on it, I, I want to correct one thing you said at the beginning. I did not tour with the Hawks and Bob in 66. It wasn't okay. until 69. But anyway, um, this, this sense of culture and music and politics all being collectively one thing was really astonishing. And, and the music was very positive. It was the times they are changing. The, the answer in fact, you is did, wait, in you, the you, you saw Dylan perform for the first time at Boston Symphony Hall in 64, if I understand correctly. And one of the songs was The Times They Are Changing. Another was uh, songs he was releasing in those days. Another was Blowing in the Wind. Um, did you have a, a sense of how important they would go on to become? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they were anthems and and they were... You know, if you think about the early civil rights movement, music was a big part of it. If you were in a sit-in, a lot of the way you kept your courage up was singing a song together, whether it was We Shall Overcome or whether it was Blowing in the Wind or whether it was something else. And so I, I feel like that sense of culture and politics being collectively together was very, very important to that period. Now, you were backstage for what was to become one of rock music's most infamous moments when Dylan was booed for going electric at this 1965 Newport Folk Festival. First of all, what were you doing backstage? And second of all, what do you think that the crowd considered almost sacrilege at the time? Um, my brother was good friends with a guy named Paul Clayton. And Paul Clayton was a ethnomusicologist, a collector of folk songs. And he was very close to Bob Dylan. And so I decided when I graduated high school to go to the Newport Folk Festival. And Paul got me a backstage pass mm -hmm. and introduced me to a band called the Jim Queskin Jug Band, which uh -huh. was a folk group. And they needed a road manager. And so I agreed to do that. And they introduced me to their manager, who was Albert Grossman. And Albert Grossman managed Bob Dylan, Peter, Paul, and Mary, the Jug Band, Paul Butterfield, Odetta, pretty much everybody important in the folk music business at that time. And so I was allowed into the inner circle of the Grossman thing. And it was at that point that I was able to observe at a little bit of a distance, what was going on in terms of Bob's kind of spontaneous decision on a Saturday afternoon to go play rock and roll at a folk festival. Now, you and, were quoted in Howard Sound's 2001 book, Down the Highway, The Life of Bob Dylan, as saying that Dylan made a last-minute decision to go electric in response to condescending remarks Alan Lomax the festival's organizer had made about the Paul Butterfield blues band? Yeah. What happened was that there was an afternoon workshop on Saturday afternoon, and Lomax was running a workshop around the country blues with Sunhouse and Skip James. And across the field, about 500 yards away, Butterfield blues band was tuning up for a, a workshop as well. And Lomax 
got pissed off and came over to the Butterfield stage and literally tried to unplug the amplifiers. And <laughs> Albert Grossman literally wrestled him to the ground and Lomax kind of slunk back to his stage. And Albert and Jeff Moldar and I walked back to the artist tent where Dylan was sitting and <laughs> Moldar kind of regaled everybody that Albert had defended Butterfield and had thrown Alan Lomax on the ground. And uh, I could see Bob's kind of smile. And I, I believe, I have no real evidence that he just decided to do it at that moment. Just like, well, if they don't want him to play electric, wait till they hear me play electric on the main stage Mm. on Sunday night as the closing act. And, and that so didn't got, go all that well, over all that well with much of the audience. It didn't go over well at all. Uh, the, the thing was thrown together fairly quickly. There was no real rehearsals. And it was the Butterfield Blues Band rhythm section and Mike Bloomfield and Al Cooper, the organ player. Mm. And Bob... You know, they were expecting Bob Dylan, the blue work shirt and blue jeans, Bob Dylan. And he comes on stage in tight black pants with English high heeled boots, a bright orange shirt and a black leather jacket. Mm. And it was like visually, what the hell is going on? And then they started to play. And after the first song, it was just completely silent and some booze. And then he went into Like a Rolling Stone. And after that one, there were more boos. Mm -hmm. And after the third song, Bob just said to Bloomfield, let's split. And he unplugged. He was supposed to play six tunes. And he unplugged after the third and left the stage. And the audience just went completely quiet. And there were people were yelling at each other. Look, you made him leave. And, and eventually, Peter Yarrow with the little aid from Johnny Cash was able to coax him Bob back on stage with an acoustic guitar. And the audience thought they had won because for folkies rock and roll was the ultimate sellout. And so they resented Dylan going rock and Bob came on and he sang it's all over now, baby blue, which was <laughs> the first kind of kiss off song. And then he left and you know, a month later, he played rock and roll again at Forest Hills, uh, by this time with some of the band, you know, the Hawks, as they were called. Now, how did you meet Dylan? And what do you recall about that first meeting? Well, I, you know, I was quite honestly, just on the sidelines, I was, I was pressed into service because Bob had one road manager, his name was Bob Newworth. And they they all of a sudden had to set up for a whole band. And so they needed an extra hand. And so I helped set up some of the amplifiers. But I was an 18-year-old kid. I was not saying, hi, Bob, I'm, my name's John Taplin. I was just watching. So that first experience was all at a little bit of distance, although I was right backstage and I could watch everything go on. Uh, later... You know, I got to know him when I got to know Robbie Robertson and the band. And that was really post a, a, 
a benefit we did for Woody Guthrie in uh, late 67. And then eventually by 1969, Bob was going out on the road with the band fairly regularly. And then we all went to the Isle of Wight together in 1969 uh, to give a very big concert in front of, at that time, the largest audience ever, you know. What was your family background? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Cleveland. Uh, my father was a lawyer. Uh, he was pretty intent on me being a lawyer, too. Uh, he, he wanted me to go to Princeton, which I did go. Um, and, you know, his he and I had a relatively contentious relationship in the sense that he didn't believe that like a sit-in, like breaking laws in order to change laws was the right way to do it. He believed that the only way to change laws is through legislation. And so he was very impatient with both myself and my brother's involvement in the civil rights movement. But, but it was um, a time of real turmoil. You were about 16 or so in 1963 when President Kennedy was assassinated. And then five years later, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were assassinated just six weeks apart. Uh, you, you write about a loss of faith that you experienced at the end of the 60s due to the, the, those acts of violence. Or, or, or was it something even more far-reaching? I think it was, it was as tragic a time as, as I've ever experienced. I mean, I actually believe that... Pretty bad right now, too. Yeah, but... Uh, this, there was a sense in 67 and 68 that real change was in the air. The civil rights movement had had some very big successes in the sense that black people could actually vote in the South, which was new. Um, and the peace movement was actually gaining a lot of momentum at the time, you know, there were regularly three or 400,000 people in the cities of New York or Washington marching against the war. And when Bobby Kennedy made the decision to run for president against Lyndon Johnson, uh, there was a real sense that maybe all these ideas of equality and we could get out of being controlled by the military industrial complex, maybe all that could actually happen. And then in literally eight weeks, it was all destroyed because the two great leaders, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy were killed. And the sense of it was screw politics. It will only break your heart. I'm gonna just go join the rock and roll circus and be involved in music and art. And, you know, it was just a sense of sadness and rejection of, of that. And, and I, I don't think it was just me. It was, I feel it was a lot of my whole generation saying politics will only break your heart. And of course that was a big mistake, you know, because then guess who we got as president, Richard Nixon. And, <laughs> you know, it's not, too dissimilar to what happened in 2016, where a lot of people just felt the world is so corrupt. 
I'm not going to vote or, you know, who cares? Hillary Clinton is just as corrupt as Donald Trump. And and so, you know, you end up getting a self-fulfilling prophecy. My guest on today is Leonard Lopate at large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Jonathan Taplin, T-A-P-L-I-N. His latest book, The Magic Year, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, is published by Heyday. You first visited Woodstock in 1967 on the invitation of, of Levon Helm. Um, I remember it as a kind of a sleepy area at the time. It was very sleepy. <laughs> it was. It had been an artist colony. Uh, then Albert Grossman had had bought a house up there, and then Bob Dylan bought a house, and then Peter Yarrow bought a house. And Bob Dylan's so, house was troubled. I, I remember he was having problems. What was it with the water or uh, yeah, something? Yeah, he, he had all sorts of problems. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it was not uh, it was not very modern in terms of its infrastructure, um, and you had some houses just had wells. You know, you're in your so. It was, but it was quiet. And then the band moved up there. And so it was really before the Woodstock Festival, you know, it was, it was a musician's town and you could go sit in the bar Dini's and have a nice drink and have a good meal. And you could go to the cafe espresso and play chess all afternoon. And, and it was, it was very much, a very quiet little town. And of course that all changed in August of 1969, even though the Woodstock festival was not in Woodstock because mm. the people of the town wanted nothing to do with it. It did make a lot of people think that it had been there. And so literally starting September, the buses would pull into Woodstock and, you know, a hundred tourists would get off looking for the rock stars you know, and it was then it became a zoo. Your first job out of college was as the road manager for the band, which was then called the Hawks. Didn't you spend two years on the road with the band in the late 60s? Almost two and a half. Um, we went all over this country and we went all over Europe. Um, the band was a, an extraordinary aggregation of musicians. You know, they they. They had somehow absorbed the kind of roots music that Bob had been playing, but they came at it from the kind of rockabilly place that Levon and Rick had grown up with, the kind of Carl Perkins attitude. And so it was, for a few years, it was, it was one of the most wonderful groups of musicians I've ever been involved with. And, and Dylan recorded over 100 songs at Big Pink, the West Sargadies house where Rick Danko, Garth Hudson, and Richard Manuel of the band lived in the late 60s. Many of them were on his 1975 double album, The Basement Tapes. What was the appeal of recording at Big Pink uh, for, for Dylan? He could have recorded anywhere with anybody at that time. Well, what happened was that Bob had been off the, you know, he had a very bad accident in 1966, went off a motorcycle uh, at about 60 miles an hour. And so he had not been on the road. Uh, 
he had not really been recording. And so Albert suggested that he could make some money if he would record these all these new songs that he'd been writing. And Albert would then get a demo tape out to a lot of other musicians, which he did. He, he, he gave it to Manfred Mann and he gave it to the birds. And, and a lot of those songs that were recorded at Big Pink did get recorded by other artists at first. Um, so it was really more of a demo tape. It wasn't meant to be a formal recording. It was a way for the music publisher to kind of let people know what Bob's new work was. And, and for the band, it was very simple. They had, a, they had a kind of basement studio in this ugly house in Saugerties. Uh, Garth Hudson had a like three input mixing board and a two track studio re recording machine. And they just would go to work every day and make new music. And I think for the band, it was a real learning experience. And you write uh, that it was Dylan who pushed the members of the band into mining 19th century and early 20th century American music. How did he know that that might be the best direction for them? Well, I think there was a natural return to kind of the roots. Uh, I mean, for both Bob and for the band, you know, if you think about the music that they were making in late 65 and, and 1966, it was very furious stuff. Uh, you know, can you please crawl out your window? I mean, all this <laughs> uh, brand new leopard skin pillbox hat. It was really the angry stuff. How does it feel to be on your own? And they played loud and they played raucously. And then that kind of ended in a kind of amphetamine craziness, which you can see in that movie that Marty Scorsese made where there's some press conferences with Bob in England and the people yelling Judas and, you know, a lot of chaos. And so post-accident, I think Bob returned to a kind of quieter feeling. He was making paintings. He was raising a family. He had three children in four and a half years. You know, I, I mean, actually, was... I actually uh, visited his house up in Woodstock at one point, and he had the largest toys I've ever seen for kids in, in uh, one of the rooms. Uh, it was a rather eccentric house, actually, not what I would have expected from a superstar. Yeah, I mean, he, he lived a fairly quiet life. Was, he so, also seemed to be taciturn and and kind of, uh, well, not always easy to get along with. Uh, how? What did you talk about when you were together? He's just a very quiet guy. <laughs> you know, he's he's all about the work, you know, quite honestly. He's not he's not voluble. Mm -hmm. I mean, he tells he's funny sometimes, but he's he's pretty quiet. So, I mean, I I think Bob's was in a kind of retreat mode there. And where he was going back to was the real stuff that he had grown up on. And I think he taught Robbie Robertson particularly about how to 
right from that point of view. I mean, certainly if you think of the weight or the, the night they drove old Dixie down or up on Cripple Creek, they all come from a kind of uh, interesting, rooted, somewhat country music, somewhat uh, rockabilly point of view, but it's very different from what they had been doing in 65 and 66. Dennis Hopper originally wanted the band to record the entire soundtrack for his film, Easy Rider, but didn't Levon Helm, the drummer, put a stop to that? Why? Uh, Levon didn't like Dennis's depiction of the South, quite honestly. Mm. I, I, I think he thought it was a kind of a cliche that these, you know, good old boys drunk in a pickup truck pull the gun off the top and and kill the the easy riders um so he kind of resented it uh robbie ended up letting him use the weight mm. in the the movie but from levon's point of view uh, he just thought that it was it was a cliche and and you know i kind of understand where Levon's coming from because his father was a dirt farmer. His father was very poor. And yet his father loved Sonny Boy Williamson. His father loved blues music. And in fact, Sonny Boy Williamson, who lived right across the river uh, in West Memphis, uh, had been a guest at their dinner table on several occasions. So, I mean... Levon just felt that the the no, way of depicting all white Southerners as racist crackers was probably more than he wanted to be. He didn't want to be in, identified with that by doing all the music. All the, he didn't even mind if Robbie let them use the weight, quite honestly. Well, to some degree, uh, the... Uh how Hopper was onto something, we still see it today. But that's a whole other matter. But by the time the, the Woodstock Festival uh, uh, took place in the summer of 1969, you were managing the band. and But your experience was pretty different from the other 400,000 attendees, uh, like helicopter rides and backstage barbecues with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Uh, what musical performances stood out for you? And were you still there for Jimi Hendrix? now legendary early morning set. So we woke up on Saturday morning, so the second day of Woodstock, and the, the front page of the New York Times had a banner headline about the festival. The New York Thruway had, had literally come to a halt. Like, there were so many people trying to get off Throughway that just blocked off all the lanes. And then people just eventually abandoned their cars by the side of the road and walked the rest of the way to Bethel, yeah. uh, where the festival was. And so the headline in the Times was that, oh, this is total chaos, no food, no sanitation. It's like there's going to be a cholera epidemic or something. Typical newspaper catastrophizing. So I called down to Michael Lang and I said, Michael, we're supposed to play on Sunday. What's going on? He said, no, it's groovy. The hog farm is feeding everybody. We've got doctors putting up tents for people who've got 
taking too much LSD and it's going to be fine. He said, there's only one problem. You can't get here by car. So I'm sending a helicopter to pick you guys up on Sunday, early around lunchtime Sunday. So we got in the helicopter, which landed on, in my backyard in Bearsville, and we flew. And I'll never forget coming over the ridge. You see this 350,000 people in a field below, and it was like a Cecil B. DeMille movie. It was like, holy cow. And we landed behind the stage. We went into a gigantic Winnebago, and there was a lot of good music playing. We would go up, and I would say the best thing I saw that night was Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, mm -hmm. and I think it was probably the first time they had played with Neil Young being in the band. Um, and he just added an element of edge to what had been a kind of sweet trio of singers, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He just added something else to it. And it was, he had that song, Ohio, which was about Kent State. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was astonishing, like a really searing guitar solo. Uh, Janice was really good. Uh, and I, I, we didn't stay till 5 a.m. to watch Jim Hendrix. We took the helicopter back to Woodstock, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, which was a little risky. But anyway, we did it. And um, so I, I, I only saw Jimmy's performance when I saw the film. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Back with Jonathan Taplin, uh, his latest book, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. It is published by Heyday Books. It's got lots of illustrations. Uh, and that was a band you were very involved with, Jonathan. A wonderful performance. I love that song. Yeah. I, think, I think that's the best live thing they ever did. Maybe don't do it. Now, you describe an appearance by three of the Beatles at Dylan's rehearsal for the, the Isle of Wight Festival in 1969. And you describe Dylan as being all business that day, shutting down any jamming that took place with the other Beatles. Do you think that day could have gone a different way? Could there have ever been a Dylan-Beatles collaboration? Well, I mean, Bob had played, the last time Bob had played in England, 
was in 1966 at the Royal Albert Hall. And if you listen to that recording, you realize that he had been booed there just as he had been booed at Newport. And so he was very serious about not having a repeat of that situation. And so he wanted the show to be really good. And so the Beatles arrived, I mean, literally like a scene out of Hard Day's Night, a helicopter lands in the backyard of this big manor house we had rented uh, to rehearse in and to stay in. And um, we had a very nice dinner and, and Bob had of course been friendly with them for quite a while. Uh, Paul wasn't there, but John and George and Ringo and their wives were there. And then we went out to rehearse and Bob was very intent on just making sure the show was completely buttoned up. And then, then there was some jamming. I mean, there were, whenever there would be a break, George or John would pick up a guitar and leave on and Rick would, would play with them. And, and, and one of the things I really realized was that the common thread and ground was things like Carl Perkins. It was like rockabilly yeah. music that they had both been in bar bands. I mean, the early Beatles stuff in Munich was all kind of rock and roll cover songs, you know, and that's exactly what the Hawks had done when they were young. And so that was the common ground. Uh, right. You know, Bob eventually did collaborate with George Harrison, both on the Bangladesh and then the traveling Wilburys. So, you know, there was some collaboration. And you were involved in the planning of the Bangladesh, uh, the concert of Bangladesh in 1971. Uh, was it, wasn't that the first real benefit concert of its time? Um, yeah, it was. It was, uh, you know, George Harrison's, one of his best friends was Ravi Shankar, the Indian musician. Mm -hmm. And he called George and he said, look, there's this unbelievable tragedy going on in this new country called Bangladesh, which had just broken off from Pakistan. And there's no infrastructure. There's, and people are starving there are floods and typhoons, and it's just like the year of the locusts. Everything that could have happened was happening at once. And he said, nobody in the United States even knows what Bangladesh is. And so George just said, well, let's try and do something about that. So he called his manager, Alan Klein, and he said, can you try and book Madison Square Garden for a a concert and they called back the next day george was up in woodstock uh staying at my house and they called back the next day and said yeah august 1st which is a sunday is free and the night before is also open so you can do a, a dress rehearsal so he just got on the phone and he got Ringo and Jim Keltner to play drums and a guy named Klaus Vorman to play bass and Leon Russell to play piano and Billy Preston to play organ. And then he got Eric Clapton to play lead guitar. And then about a week and a half later, he got a commitment from Bob Dylan to participate as well. And so 
it really came together incredibly fast. Um, the actual week of the concert was a little more concerning in the sense that Eric never made it off the plane from London. <laughs> and every time we would send a car out to get him to pick him up, to take him to the airport, his girlfriend would come out and say he's too sick to travel. And those of us who knew that he was having heroin addiction problems knew that that was kind of code word. And eventually George said, well, we'll get another guitar player. And then pretty much every guitar player in the world started showing up at the Park Lane Hotel <laughs> in New York where we were all staying. And, uh, you know, he chose a guy named Jesse Ed Davis, who we all knew who had played for Taj Mahal and was a very low key, no drama kind of character. We knew we wouldn't have any problems with him. And so we, I sent word back to Apple in London, tell Eric, we don't need him. We got one. And then of course he said, I'm, I'm on the next plane. Mm -hmm. And so he showed up we had anyway. two lead guitar players. Now we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> I want to get to as much of it as I can, because uh, there's so many interesting stories here. You spent time with the Rolling Stones in the south of France as they were recording what was to become Exile on Main Street. And you were asked to manage their tour of the United States in the summer of 72. You turned it down. Yeah, I went. I, they sent me a ticket to the south of France and they were all holed up in tax exile there. Uh, and I went to this beautiful villa that Keith Richards had in Saint-Jean-Capra. And um, we had a meeting ostensibly at one o'clock. And around three, Charlie Watts, who was the most responsible guy in the band, wanders in. And around 4.30, Mick comes in. And we start the meeting. And, and around six, there's still no sign of Keith Richards. And Mick keeps sending the butler up to try and roust Keith out of bed. And eventually Keith comes down looking like a hundred miles of bad road. And uh, I just, you know, could see all the junky signs, you know, scratching the neck, kind of drinking tan espressos. <laughs> and uh, I just thought I had just gone through hell with Eric Clapton because getting him to New York was one thing, but actually getting him on stage was even harder. <laughs> and I just thought, enough. I, I can't do this. Life is too short, you know? So and is so, that what led you to make that leap that you mentioned earlier from being a tour manager for rock and roll bands to a producer in the film industry? Uh, yeah. You did choose wisely because the first movie was, as you said, Martin Scorsese's 1973 debut feature film, Mean Streets, that starred a couple of young actors named Robert De Niro and Harvey Keitel. And you were on the set for their first major on-screen performances. Did you have any sense that you were watching two of the, the greatest actors of our time? Well, I think, Bobby, it was instantly obvious to me that that Bob De Niro was on the level of Marlon Brando. I mean, it was his intensity in that role of Johnny Boy is so palpable. And, and it, 
you know, he was a, the kind of actor who didn't really leave the role behind. In other words, when, when the cameras were turned off, he still was kind of in character, which for Richard Romanus, who played his kind of nemesis, the, the loan shark who's trying to collect from him all the time, was a little upsetting. You know, it was like scary. You know, you're, you're trying to collect a loan from this guy and you think this, this guy could bite your head off. And, and Bobby never really let him back into being like being friends. It was, it, it was going to keep him at bay and keep him a little frightened all the time. But uh, I think that was pretty clear that he was going to be an extraordinary thing. But what was clearer was that Marty had a grasp of what he wanted to do better than anything I could have imagined. Uh, you know, he'd been trying to make this movie for four years. Uh, he had drawn out every single shot, every single camera move in these little storyboards. So he was capable of doing like 30 setups a day, which in hmm. movie terms is astonishing. And so and for somebody who'd all... invested in the film, that must have made you feel a little better yeah, <laughs> because it could have cost I mean, a lot I, look, more. I was ridiculously naive, as I said. I didn't know you weren't supposed to. And then you had a hit. Uh, but you worked with Scorsese again on The Last Waltz, uh, the documentary film of the band's last concert at the Winterland Ballroom in Fran San Francisco. We, we heard the the first song from that film, Holland Doja, uh, Holland's uh, Don't Do It, which actually was the last song in the, in the concert. Uh, but uh, Scorsese started off the film with it. In the book, you refer to that experience as one of the most satisfying moments in your career. What made it so special for you? Well, the band was wanting to kind of find a kind of climax to their career. I mean, in retrospect, maybe it was more Robbie wanting to do that than everybody else. But um, and so the idea that most of the major musicians of my generation were willing to show up on their own dime to, to play tribute to the band and play with them and sing with them was pretty amazing. I mean, not just Van Morrison and Muddy Waters and Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Paul Butterfield and you know, but just, you know, less obscure people, less well-known people like Ronnie Hawkins or Dr. John. And it was just, and everybody brought their A game. There's a, there's a song called further up down, further on down the road with Eric Clapton and Robbie have a kind of guitar duel, which is kind of a throwback to the old age of dueling guitar players. And you can see in both their eyes that they are being pushed to the absolute limit of, of being challenged. How good are you? And Eric, of course, being the guitar God really rose to the occasion, but Robbie did too, in a way that's mm. just astonishing. And so, I mean, it all worked together kind of brilliantly. I mean, we had some kind of strange, 
missteps to get there, but but uh, in the end, it was a great piece of work. My guest on today's London Lopate at Large is Jonathan Taplin, whose latest book is The Magic Years Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life, Bob Dylan and the Band, George Harrison, Janis Joplin, Mick Jagger, Jimi Hendrix, Eric Clapton, and more. It's published by Heyday. But then in the mid-80s, you made another very unlikely career move. You worked in investment banking for Merrill Lynch. How did that just seems like such a weird jump. <laughs> it was. Uh, I was an f- independent film producer at Walt Disney. Um, and I would go up to the executive dining room in the, in the animation building where all the executives worked. And it had once been where all the animators worked, but since Walt had his office there, all the executives moved in and pushed all the animators out uh, so they could be close to Walt. And then of course, by this time, Walt was dead. This was early 84. And the president of Walt Disney, Ron Miller used to play poker for three hours every afternoon with a bunch of cronies who were called producers. They were on literally on salary as producers, but they seemed to do nothing but play poker and go to, Ron Miller's winery every weekend and <laughs> on, a, like a good on the Disney jet. And so it kind of pissed me off. And I went down to see a good friend named Richard Rainwater, who, who was the investment advisor to the Bass Brothers in Fort Worth, Texas. And I told him I thought that was the most undervalued company in the world and that the Basses should get involved to try and make it worthy of its name and richard said it was a great idea but they couldn't do it because they own 9.9 percent of texaco and we're having to maybe buy more to keep texaco from buying getty oil so i went home to burbank and about three months later a guy named saul steinberg with the help of mike milken started a corporate raid on walt disney And the management just flipped out. And when they were on the verge of trying to get Anheuser-Busch, ostensibly under the idea that they both ran theme parks, uh, to be their white knight, uh, Richard and Sid Bass called me and said, we just sold all our Texaco stock and we're ready to save the mouse. So I went down and talked to the chairman, Ron, Ray Watson and I and I got him on a private plane to Fort Worth. And in like two weeks, we made a deal for the Basses to sell all their Florida, Orlando real estate holdings to Disney for stock. And that put enough stock in the hands of the Disney family, Roy Disney and the Basses to block Saul Steinberg. So Saul Steinberg went away. And the Basses paid me as their investment advisor. And so I made more money in three weeks than I'd made in 10 years. And they said, we'd like you to go to work for our real investment advisor, which was Merrill Lynch. So I went and met Ken Miller, who was the head of the mergers and acquisition group. And he hired me. And it was, you know, it was a strange twist, but it was one of those things like, 
Okay, here's here's a new opportunity. I just had a young family. It was a way to get myself some financial security. And I was still in the entertainment business in the sense that what they wanted me to do was evaluate entertainment mergers and acquisitions. So we did Viacom with someone Redstone and we did Vestron and we did a bunch of other things like that. But after four years, didn't a meeting, I'm, we're running out of time and I want to cover some more stuff, uh, a meeting with Ivan Boski uh, and an opportunity with German film director Wim Wenders led you to change the director of direction of your career once again. And, and I, I wonder if that's the first time that those two names have been uttered in the same <laughs> sentence on a radio show. Uh, yeah, I did. We did have a meeting with Ivan Boski. He's sort of a the smallest croissant I'd ever seen and a little tiny cheap styrofoam cup of coffee in this marble conference room he had. It was such an ironic thing. And I, when the meeting was over, I really felt like I had to go take a shower. And about a week later, Vim Vendors called me. He said, John, I've been trying to get this movie until the end of the world made for like, five years and I can't get anybody to finance it. How would you like to come and produce it and help me raise the money? And it was like, he threw me a lifeline. <laughs> I was just kind of sick of the mergers and acquisition business. It had turned kind of sour and uh, you know, Boski was eventually sent to jail. Uh, yeah. And, and so I, I ran, I, Vim was the, the head of the uh, jury at the Cannes Film Festival. And I went to Cannes and met with him and, and we ag I agreed to produce the movie. And, and, and then I, I was like joining the French Foreign Legion. It literally took us two and a half years to make the movie. But we only have about a minute and a half left. And I do want to cover what's been happening over the past 20 years. You've taught at USC, served as a director of its Annenberg Innovation Lab. Mm -hmm and as the founder and CEO of the first streaming video on demand service. And you've also become a published author. Would you say all of those positions were involved with the intersection of technology and culture? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, you know, I would say my biggest concern right now is how technology is changing our society. A friend of mine said to me the other day, if Facebook was around in 1955, we would still have polio. <laughs> and I think that's probably true. Oh if, you, if you know what the source of the reason yeah. we can't get to herd immunity in America is because there's so much anti-vax propaganda on Facebook and Facebook is making, according to some accounts, you know, a billion dollars a year off ads connected to anti-vax propaganda. So, I, you know, I don't think these are responsible players in the media writ large. Uh, the kind of things that they, the kind of lies and distortions they put out, if you would put them out on your radio show, you would be liable for lawsuits as obviously, you know, when Rupert Murdoch and, Newsmax had to retract their lies about the Dominion voting machines because they were sued. You can't sue Facebook. It's got a total protection from the government called safe harbor. 
So, I mean, I worry about that a lot. Are there any reasons for optimism? And please make 30 seconds. Yeah. I think we're at a place just like we were in 1961, at least in the music business. I go down to a thing called the Americana Music Festival uh, every September and hear young artists like Rhiannon Giddens and YOLO and, you know, Brandy Carlisle and making wonderful, sweet, what I would call Nouvelle folk music. You know, it's called Americana now, but it's, it's really roots music. So we're returning to some kind of simpler, basic music that has a, a beauty and a grace to it that, that thrills me. So, um, you know, the, the culture goes through cycles. We'll, we'll get out of this kind of world of nihilism that we're in right now. Well, thank you so much for being on our show. I've been it talking was, with Jonathan Taplin, whose latest book is The Magic Year, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. It's published by Heyday. He's also the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy, uh, among other things, uh, along with all of his work at USC. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. It's been great talking to you, too, Leonard. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing the interview you just heard. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available on, on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to take uh, just a minute to ask you to support this station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this whole thing going during these difficult financial times because BAI is dependent 100% on the support of its audience. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212. 212- 209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 to keep the kind of unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. Big thanks to everyone who is helping to keep us on the air with their generosity. And we hope that you'll join us again Tomorrow, when Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and author John Meacham will discuss his new podcast, Fate of Fact. We'll see you then.